Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Oh, I'm busting out all over. And you, Sean? Super as always. Now, of course, this is the podcast that normally looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. But this is episode two of our mini-series, The Male Gaze. The Male Gaze. And in fact, although we normally do look at the not-so-distant past, we are going further back in the past, darling, than we've ever gone before. Isn't that right? Yeah, until the future episode. (laughs) We're going all the way back to the stultifying Eisenhower years. That's right, the 1950s. Yes, now, I think this is the perfect broad appeal film. Explain. Well, because it meets our criteria of being female-driven while meeting our new criteria of being male-centric, of being fallow-centric, if you will. Today we are going to do Douglas Sirk's 1956 film, Written on the Wind, starring Rock Hudson and Robert Stack as our male protagonists, and Lauren Bacall and Academy Award winner Dorothy Malone as our female protagonists. My favourite time of day is night. Yes, for those who don't know what that is, go onto YouTube right now, type in Lauren Bacall coffee commercial and enjoy. But listen, this is not about Lauren Bacall. This is the male gaze here at Broader Piano Sean. We have many things that are different between us. You're Irish, I'm Irish American. Your skin is dark, my skin is pale. Your penis is circumcised, my penis is uncircumcised. T M I. However, there is one thing that came to light as we were getting to know each other that we had in common. We both have an affection, at least for one of the films of Douglas Sirk. When I was growing up, I don't know how I came across it. I think actually it was on the Disney Channel when I was a kid. I somehow watched Douglas Sirk's remake of Imitation of Life. There was something about it, even though it was an old movie that was glossy, that I felt there was this kind of palpable social commentary going on about about race in the film. And in fact, when I needed in, I think, seventh grade to do a middle school presentation on a social issue of some kind, I decided that my uh, presentation would be about racism. And rather than presenting any other kind of film that Oh, I don't know. Might have been more recent. (laughs) In fact, this was the year that Spike Lee made Malcolm X. I showed my seventh grade classmates Imitation of Life, edited down with all the scenes between uh, the black mother and her her light-skinned daughter, Sarah Jane. Now, Brian, this is why you are you. (laughs) Yes, but also you are you. Yeah, but I discovered it when I was studying a melodrama module in university under the great Charles Barr. So much of my adult psyche and interests and passions was definitely shaped by the content of one particular module at university. You are a student of melodrama, and lest anyone doubt it, you do bring it into your everyday life. <laughs> you know, you. you live the melodrama, but you also you also know it inside out, and you know the work of Douglas Sirk. Well, I don't know it inside out, but I think the thing is that the ones I have seen, I know quite in depth. Now, Shawnee, there are probably listeners who are out there in our in our universe who don't know anything that happened before 1989, you know? And this movie is not Romeo and Michelle. This movie is not Girl Interrupted. So can you give a sort of potted history? What is the significance of Douglas Sirk? We, people might have the mistaken impression that he is a gay or queer filmmaker because his films have been such iconic touchstones to some of the great queer filmmakers came later. But he was a straight man, yes? This is exactly it. 
I think this comes very much into what we would call a queer sensibility. Now, queerness has is rooted in a kind of an intellectualism, can be rooted in intellectualism, that both comments on the society and is aware of what it's living in. And Douglas Sirk was one of those men. Douglas Sirk was born in 1900 in Hamburg in Germany. He grew up and he started working in the theatre. He was a director during Weimar Germany. He also watched Hitler rise. Okay, And as we all know, there were people who were complicit in the rise of the Nazis and there were people who fled. Now, Douglas Sirk was one of those people. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about Douglas Sirk's contribution to Hollywood cinema once he arrived. What studio was he at? Universal, mostly. And so when he came to America, he changed his name from Detlev Sirk to Douglas Sirk because it was more bankable. Now, the thing is, Douglas Sirk was a working director. Mm -hmm. This is before the word auteur was even bandied about. Some, of course, did it for the paycheck, others were artists, but they were all doing it because it was their job. Cirque was no different. However, he was a man who was adept at both theatre and film and was deeply curious about the society that he lived in. He was a man who loved irony and he believed that the Americans had none. It's fair to say, and I, I've certainly only dabbled in reading his comments, he sort of didn't like a lot of the material he was given, the kind of plot lines of a lot of the films. Is it fair to say he was fighting the surface message or the surface subject matter of a lot of the films by giving a kind of ironic, subversive undertone, using these stories, mostly of domestic 1950s America, as a kind of coded critique of the society that he was part of? I would say yes, and I would say it was in the most visual sense possible, because obviously he didn't write these films, no. you know? But as a director, what he did was he used, I would say, almost kind of theatrical techniques, lighting, mise-en-scene, camera angles, framing. You know, he was a director who had the words, and he said, well, okay, I've just as much as I can do with it, and he put everything else around it, okay? He also had a producing partner for his biggest films at Universal, and that was a producer called Ross Hunter. The fabulous Ross Hunter. Yes, and he indeed was fabulous, I say, with a limp wrist, because he was a gay producer. And he worked a lot with Rock Hudson more than once, isn't that right? Yeah, he worked with Rock Hudson a few times, actually, and, you know, so he was a straight director working with a gay producer and a star who he knew was gay and who had lovers and pool parties and God knows what, who was being the the totem of masculinity in these films. I mean, with a name like Rock Hudson. And a jaw like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, we, you've, you've whet our appetite and the appetite of the, the listeners is saying, ooh, this sounds, you know, this is melodrama. It's got, it's got passionate emotions. It's got a closeted male star. It's got glamorous gowns and glitziness. Now, Cirque's films were not necessarily highly regarded as art in their time, but he was then picked up, wasn't he, by later openly gay directors, ranging from Rainer Werner Fassbinder in Germany to Pedro Almodovar in Spain, and kind of most recently Todd Haynes in the new queer wave cinema in America, whose films are very openly indebted to the work of Douglas Sirk. So what are they responding to? Even though queerness is very much uh, a broad spectrum, queer people have often, you know, we've, we've existed amongst the heterodoxy, either secretive or passing. How I, how I view queerness is a kind of a, an ability to pass 
in a society while still being you and still kind of winking at the the forces of hierarchy, toying with them, fucking with them, laughing at them. Is it is it fair to say that the non-queer is everything that conforms to surface categories, hegemonic binaries? So what is it about Cirque's attitude to this material that makes queer viewers respond to it so uh, passionately? Irony in terms of how you watch the film, in terms of who's the main character, in terms of whose storyline matters. So, for example, you know, your film like Imitation of Life, it had two stories. But for many people who went to see the film, the story was about Lana Turner as a struggling single mother who wants to make it as an actress. She also had a maid who had a daughter who passed for white. In my memory, the A plot is the most boring white bread thing. And that what I responded to as a boy is this amazing challenging story about racial identity and this mother-daughter relationship and passing Cirque by privileging what is sort of the secondary story is sort of questioning whether that other more establishment story is indeed the A story. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, this is exactly why you saw it this way. Because yeah. you watched it with a queer sensibility. Even as a kid, okay? Yeah. You were more aware that something is, one, more interesting. Mm-hmm. Two is definitely, you know, there's much more tension, Mm. much more significance, okay? But that is, you are not the standard 1959 Hollywood audience, okay? Like Betty Draper from Mad Men was not responding to that. And it's not to say that audiences were stupid. Dominant society is straight, okay? Mm -hmm. The dominant society is aspirational. The dominant society looked at the Lana Turner story, it looked at the Sandra Dee story, and it thought, wow, what amazing stars, what amazing lives, what amazing traumas they suffer. Mm. And that's what they identified with. And I think, I guess, when the Todd Haineses of the world started looking with a queer eye at Cirque, it started to reveal levels that other people hadn't necessarily picked up on before. Can I just also mention something about Cirque's life that kind of gives a little bit more context to it, It makes him more queer. Douglas Cirque had a second wife, and his second wife was Jewish. And his first wife was not happy about this. His first wife, who he divorced, she be- she became a Nazi and she embraced Nazism. Douglas Sirk fled his country, his family, because they were going to kill him. He was even written to by, I think it was Joseph Goebbels, saying, we would love to have you working for us. You're an artist and you would support the Reich beautifully. Sirk said when he got the letter, he tore it up and threw it into the nearest toilet he could find. Mm. Okay, so this is a man with convictions. He was queer because of the life that he he was forced to live. So can we talk about masculinity and kind of zero in on this film, which we're about to watch, Written on the Wind? I know who's in this film. I think... Is it set in Texas or have something to do with oil? Yeah, it's set in oil country. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Texas. Yeah. Phallic symbols, just saying. <laughs> Gushers, geysers of oil. It's interesting. Rock Hudson seemed to pop up in a lot of flicks about oil. Isn't Giant also about oil? It is. Okay, so beyond the fact that it has those stars and also that Dorothy Malone, who attentive listeners may remember had a small part in Basic Instinct. Which episode is one of very, Broadway. very first episode. Dorothy Malone went on to win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. That is literally all I know about Written on the Wind. It also got a Supporting Actor nomination for Robert Stack, who, turns out, I knew as a child in the TV show that I watched religiously with my sister called 
Unsolved Mysteries. Yes, that is a very 90s phenomenon right there. Unsolved Mysteries. I remember getting out of the bath in a hurry one time because I heard the theme music playing through the room. <laughs> That's how much I loved Unsolved Mysteries. Did you watch it in the bath? Uh, no, I probably watched it in my pajamas. You put some, put some clothes on. Yeah, yeah. Good. When we went to see Todd Haynes uh, speak at the BFI last year, he talked about melodrama as a world in which, or the kind of story in which, there's not an out-and-out villain where the opposition to our heroes is often about the society around them and the kind of oppressive domestic space and the sort of patriarchy. So is it the kind of world of rich oil families that are oppressing these people? Or do you want to give us any hint about that? Well, Brian, what you just said is yet, yet another reason why uh, the melodrama and Cirque is another example of it being a, a queer film and a queer filmmaker. So to give you a really simple description of it, some critics have said, were it not for written on the wind, there would be no Dallas, there would be no dynasty, there would be no the Colbys. Some people would say, well, what a shame, those things were shit, you know? Not but Joan Collins. No, or Rock Hudson, who was a gigging actor on Dynasty. Really? Oh, do you know this? No. We'll talk about this uh, off mic. So, basically, it's the story of a rich oil family and their problems. The Hadley kids, played by Dorothy Malone and Robert Stack, are spoiled, rich oil kids. They're grown up but they're still as bratty as they always were. And Dorothy Malone's kind of a nympho, if, if memory serves. She is a bit of a nympho. We use that in, in, in inverted commas. Rock Hudson is the best friend of Robert Stack, who was his childhood friend, who, you guessed it, lived in contrast, being the son of a cabin-owning fisherman dad or something, <laughs> get, yet grew up with the Hadleys as if he was... Uh, one of their own. So he's the outsider. He's the sort of more marginal character in terms of class. Yeah, in some, well, in some ways he actually crosses the, the line of both worlds. And then Lauren Bacall is us in the story, really. She's the one who wanders into the life of the Hadley family. Now, last thing. In what sense is this a film that's examining masculinity or complicating masculinity? Well, you think of it this way, okay? If you cast Rock Hudson in the centre of a film, the supporting males are always going to pale in comparison. In what sense? Rock Hudson is both virile, handsome, all-American, uh -huh. and, dare I say it, quite good and quite virtuous. Yeah. Robert Stack is a man in crisis. He's expected to man the reins of this great oil company. He's also an alcoholic. Yeah. He has a sister who taunts him and berates him who is his rival in many ways for Rock Hudson. Oh, is this a bit of a uh, brick and skipper thing, cat in a hot tin roof, of like intense male friendship that may have a kind of homosocial bond? Mm, yes and no. I mean, the, I think the bonds between these two characters go beyond anything you could say about attraction. It's more about aspiration. Interesting. Before we go, will there be any bongo drums? Because as far as I'm concerned, bongo drums on the soundtrack are sort of like great indicators of roiling passion underneath. Brian, one word, yes. Yes! <laughs> there is a great scene with bongo drums, and you are going to love it. All right. Well, my interest is peaked, my bongos are drumming, and we are about to... Uh... <laughs> you always do this. I feel like Hillary. 
Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> we have to say something. It's only taken us 20-something episodes, Brian, but we're finally doing a Douglas Sirk film. It is written on the wind, and we will see you on the other side. A faithless lover's kiss Stolen is Kyle, I went to see Dr. Cochran this morning. He told you about me, didn't he? I said the news was good. What's good about it? We have going to have a baby. <laughs> you mean adopt one? <laughs> no. No, our baby. Yours and mine. I was just a drunken idiot, that I believe you, <laughs> that I'd let you use my name, take my money. You can rot in hell, you, Mitch, and your little... God, I've had nothing to do with it. You dirty... Welcome back to the second half. We have... Phallic symbols coming out the wazoo after watching that film. Oh, gushes and gushes of oil spurting all over the place. Yeah, the very, very, very last scene of the film, Brian audibly went, whoa, with the most <laughs> unsubtle phallic symbols you can think possible. Beautifully composed, very effective, but yes, Academy Award winner Dorothy Malone is stroking a, a small replica oil well, and and to, to double things, to make it worse, there's a painting of her father behind her stroking uh, his own oil well. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an oil well exactly, I think they call it an oil derrick, those kind of like yeah, pointy the, ones. the big tall sort of pyramid type thing that yeah. goes over the well. The obelisk type ones. Yes. Phallic symbols indeed, and garish bright colours, I think I noted the pink walls, the red lilies, the stark contrast of color scheme between the virginal white worn by uh, Lauren Bacall and the sexy black worn by Dorothy Malone. So for our listeners at home, for a film that's very symbolically rich, it's actually quite simple in terms of plot. There are four essential characters. There is Kyle Hadley and his sister Mary Lee, who are the supporting players in the film, really, and are two leads 
We have Mitch Wayne, who is played by Rock Hudson, and Lauren Bacall plays Lucy Moore, who marries Kyle Hadley. If I could say, it's essentially a love quartet where the passion between people is always connected to a point within the square that is kind of misplaced, and that's what's causing all the problem. Each of them is sort of in love with the wrong person. There aren't all that many supporting characters. It's a very emotionally and familially claustrophobic story, right? Because there, there aren't that many other places for all the repressed uh, sexual energy to go, and thus... And, and two of them are siblings, yeah. so while they don't have the sexual energy, there is well, a, a different kind of, you know, heated yeah. energy between them. So let's just do it really simply, okay? Kyle loves Lucy. Mitch loves Lucy. Lucy doesn't know she loves Mitch. Mary Lee loves Mitch. Kyle hates Mary Lee. Mary Lee hates Kyle and Lucy. I think there's some complicated ones that are sort of both things at once. Like I'd say within the sibling relationship, I don't think it's pure or simply hate. And I think there's a real big question mark about Lauren Bacall and Rock Hudson, which we can get to. But at the start of the movie, we are given one of those flashback kind of things, right? Where we see a kind of disaster take place. Robert Stack, Kyle Hadley, the Playboy oil uh, heir, is driving recklessly in a roadster. He shows up at his house. We meet all the other characters looking out the window troubled, and he kind of collapses dead. And then we have this dramatic flashback in time, and everything we see in the story is going to take us forward to understanding how this man ended up slumped dead in the front of his family mansion, right? Yeah, and that amazing opening title sequence, you know, it's one of those brilliant mid-50s Hollywood openings where there's a great song that plays over by the Four Aces called, you guessed it, Written on the Wind. Can you sing it? Um, our true love's kiss is written on the wind. Something like that. Nicely done. Yeah, yeah. La, 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 la. Written on the wind. One of those kind of things. <laughs> Meanwhile, the wind itself yeah. is blowing. Oh, that, that amazing scene. Uh, Robert Stack bolts open the front door, and these piles of leaves and these wind. <laughs> and this is one of those. It's it's one of those kind of like dynasty houses, Dallas houses, where everything is like grand and marble and white and well lit. And these leaves just storm in behind him, gusts swirling everywhere. It's pretty impressive. But yeah, like you said, so this wind also flips back the diary pages about a year. We're taken back in time to see how these characters meet each other. We're also taken to a very different world. So we go from this kind of Texas opulence to the upper floors of a posh Madison Avenue advertising agency. Very, in my mind, reminiscent of Mad Men. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Matthew Weiner had watched this and other Cirque films for a lot of the kind of look and aesthetic of Mad Men. Um, Lauren Bacall is the secretary uh, of an ad executive who's working on a campaign for Hadley Oil. In comes Rock Hudson. They have a bit of little banter together, and she's like, well, where's Kyle Hadley? Isn't he the one who's going to be approving this new ad campaign? And then basically, in one of the weirdest precipitating events I can think of, Rock Hudson is like, well, I'm Kyle's best friend, Mitch, and Kyle's at the 21 Club with some ladies, and he's kind of asking me to bring you along to have the meeting there. And basically, correct me if I've got this wrong, but Rock Hudson is sort of like procuring women to bring to Kyle to use for his sexual pleasure at this nightclub. 
and he sort of brings along Lauren Bacall, who's nominally there for this advertising meeting, but actually the the undercurrent is, we think you're hot. But through the whole thing, Mitch has this, like, pained expression, which is kind of like, he's my nominal best friend, I've been his kind of sidekick for years, but I think this is all completely distasteful. So Lauren kind of meets him, and she's basically unimpressed by the cockiness and grandeur and displays of wealth by Kyle Hadley. At one point, he asks her what advertising agency she trained at. He then demands a phone and says, you want it? I'll buy the agency for you. It, it's almost so desperate in its display that you kind of, you, you have a, a great sense of distaste for Kyle Hadley. He then kind of convinces her that he's going to take her up in his airplane. She says yes to it. Yeah. She seems to be saying yes to everything while being reticent at the same time. He ditches his best friend, who manages to completely know what his other friend is doing, meets him at the airport, and all three of them take off in the sky. Kyle Hadley confesses his, you know, heart to Lucy Moore, telling him about the black sheep of his family, his problems, his alcoholism, his desperation to find love. He brings her to this glamorous hotel in Miami, so glamorous and so tackily distasteful, full of jewels and costumes and... Yeah, he's ordered ahead for the, her entire hotel suite to be festooned with more flowers. Festooned is definitely the word. <laughs> and, it, it, and, and, and an entire closet full of gowns. It's one of those things where it's like, it's so high glam, but also so cold. And you're absolutely right that, like, Lauren Bacall's character has made this strange and ridiculous choice. You either kind of want her to be dazzled and be like, I'm gonna be wined and dined and, like, taken off for a dirty weekend with this guy in Miami, or else I find it completely appalling. And she kind of sort of mm. vacillates. And eventually, she decides not to go through with this sex weekend in Miami and she runs away from the hotel and you think oh great she's got some sense on her on her shoulders but actually as soon as he chases her down in the Miami airport he gives her another spiel <laughs> and he says you know I could we could go on dates I get to know you I could feel the future together and they embrace then they get married yeah, literally what he says is if this were not about play if this were about me working and behaving how would you feel and I literally think I turned to you at this point and said, has this all been one day? Yeah. And, and it has. Yeah, but the thing is, like, this is where the kind of the pulpy soap opera plot really kind of rears its head. But I know when you spell it out, like, the character's motivations are constantly, like you said, vacillating. Like, Lucy Moore especially, because, I mean, I think the thing is, though, like, I think a normal person would, in a sense, vacillate between making the right decision and the wrong decision. But, of course, then she marries him, which obviously makes the plot a little bit weirder. Yeah. I, I presume this is based on a novel or something? Yeah, it's based yeah. on a novel. The entire plot of this film is complete trash. Flimsy, weightless, nothing. Even just describing it feels ludicrous. However, and if you haven't seen Written on the Wind, listeners, the sophistication and levels and irony of the film come almost entirely from the direction and the technical aspects of how it's presented. And maybe we'll talk a bit more about this. You know... I've seen this film a few times, and something about this viewing struck me. How many films of this age, Brian, around the 1950s, were as explicit about a male character wanting to have sex with a female character? I mean, he uses pure grinder speak at one point. I know. It's kind of spooky, isn't it? She says, I would feel bad in the morning. And he says, you mean at the thought of having 
fun. It's like, so he has got her there for the purpose of having sex with her. And he, he says it. I mean, he says it in the way people today say it, having some fun with someone. I think the key thing about Robert Stack's character and what makes him a sort of shockingly modern kind of person is that you get the sense rumbling throughout that all of this masculine overcompensating is partially about showing off that he can be just as hot and square-jawed and powerful as his sidekick, Mitch, played by Rock Hudson. And they're this weird duo, right? Mm -hmm. Because Kyle is super rich and has all this power, but he also has this internalized anxiety and insecurity. This massive inferiority complex. Yeah, he, he sort of feels weak and, and later feels a bit impotent. Whereas Mitch, who looks obviously like Rock Hudson, so is essentially gorgeous, a gorgeous hunk of a man, he's a weirdly passive character at the same time. Like, he can hold his own in a fist fight, and he mm. certainly does that a couple of times, but he is so not assertive as a character, right? He essentially goes along, rolls his eyes displeasingly or sarcastically as his rich buddy Kyle is betting this woman... And, and clearly he doesn't approve of any of this behavior, but he never sort of stands up or challenges anything in any way. So there's this weird interplay of, like, who's the man, and neither of them is a particularly strong or traditionally active masculine character. In fact, the active masculine character is probably Mary Lee Hadley. And we'll get to her, we'll get to her. So neither of them are really a complete man. Yeah. And actually, maybe the more that I think about this, perhaps that starts to explain the weird love triangle that begins between them and Lauren Bacall because she seems like she's taken with Robert Stack enough to marry him, right? But Rock Hudson's been there from the beginning. There at least is some sort of thing going on between her and Rock Hudson as well. But he never asserts himself. He is there to, to caddy her from the office to yeah. 21. It's kind of like Rock and Robert Stack, Kyle and Mitch merge together would be like a complete man. And like, basically, agree, well, Cirque loved dualism. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, I was viewing a lot of this, like, through my frame of thinking about Mad Men and Don Draper and all this kind of stuff. I was thinking about how this 50s generation of men were probably too young to have served in World War II, I presume. You know, the kind of young men of the 1950s. They are in this sort of post-war crisis... America is a prosperous nation. They haven't necessarily had to prove themselves. They've got money to, to burn. They've got luxury goods. And they have nowhere to test out. You know, the, the frontier is all gone. Mm. We'll be talking about frontier later when we look at the Western. But in a way, they're men who have it all and are now being troubled by their own psyches and their own impotence. Yeah, so they have it all, but they also have everything to prove as well. Yeah, exactly. So that's sort of the the game plan before we head back to Texas. Yes, the sort of first movement of the film. And this Wait, is... Wait, there's an important moment you forgot, though. What's that? But before they get to Texas, there's a scene in which Lucy wakes up in the middle of the night on their honeymoon, wherever they are, and uh, she adjusts her husband's head on the pillow only to find a pearl-handed pistol underneath. We also get to see uh, Robert Stack's torso, the only torso we get to see in the film, I know men have been in, like, vests and stuff and undressed in films, but it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, how often do you just see a man half-naked lying there in a film? Eh, I don't know. 
Maybe they should have named him Robert Stacked. <laughs> yeah. Um, it also... Robert Jacked. <laughs> when she finds that revolver under his pillow, it's a clear invocation of Anton Chekhov's rule, Sean. Yeah, so if you see a gun in the first act by the third act, it will... It's a fairly girly-looking pistol. Have you ever thought of that? It is, yeah. It's a gold pistol with a pearl handle, and it's tiny. Mm. Well, Tiny Pistol, <laughs> he's going to be having trouble with some... He with, might be shooting, shooting some, some blanks, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we get back to... We get back to I Texas. never thought of that. I, ne- I never, never thought, thought of that. that. So we get back to Texas, and we are introduced to the fourth point in this parallelogram, who is Mary Lee, played by Dorothy Malone. She's the daughter of a powerful family, but she is also the town slut. Mary Lee has this pent-up energy, which she seems to direct in all the wrong places. There's, there's one scene where, where she's introduced. She's introduced in the local dive bar, yeah, which seems to be a haunt for the Hadley kids in right or wrong ways. She's with this guy who she's not supposed to be with, and she wants to get off with him. But there's this immense sense of boredom before you know she cuts to the chase. She is deeply passionate. She's presented in red. Her car is red. The, red lilies in her bedroom. Yeah, so there's two instruments that are used to present her one is the trumpet the kind of sexy jazz trumpet the other one is the bongo which we know signifies death uh, how do you say bongo of death in spanish Brian? bongo, bongo de, de la, la muerte. muerte something like that so the bongo <laughs> de la muerte and what's trumpet in spanish trompeta trompeta de la muerte <laughs> okay Obviously, she's carrying a torch for the one man she can't have. Who well, is... she's not just carrying a torch. She's, she's, her loins are burning for and this she man. She is openly lusting after Rock Hudson slash Mitch, who she's grown up with as a kid. He's the kind of friend of the family, treated like a son. Yeah. She's in love with him. Everybody seems to think that Mary Lee and Mitch ought to just do it and get together. Everybody, that is, except Mitch, who basically... Seems to not want to get hitched to anyone and to be a bit passive. I love you, Mitch. I'm desperate for you. So desperate I run to the likes of Roy Carter. All right, blame me. I'm not talking about blame, about love. Do you love me, Mitch? Like a brother. I don't want you as a brother. Can't be any other way, Mary. Don't. Please don't. Waste your life away waiting for me. I'll wait. And I'll have you. Marriage... Or no marriage. Let's just think about it, okay? Here is a gorgeous, horny girl yeah. who knows this man inside out, who is extremely rich and loves him. Yeah. Okay? And yet he's not even faintly interested. Can I just say, he could be faintly interested at least, okay? This man is a moron. Well, he's a moron. Th- think or about the hot sex they'd have. He's either a moron or a repressed homosexual. I mean, I know that in the plot of the movie, he is 
chastely in love with Lauren Bacall. But perhaps knowing what we know about Rock Hudson as well, there is this sense of this question mark around him of like, why isn't he interested in this? Both Kyle, her brother, and Mitch, her unrequited love, don't like the fact that she's mixing herself up with dangerous, trashy lays. And they frequently find these guys, they beat up the guy, right? Yeah. Well, no, actually, the first time Kyle tries to beat him up, and then Kyle gets pounded in the face, and Mitch has to take over. So Mitch is the strong masculine one who can at least stand up in a fight. And she says about her weakling brother, just about the only thing you could kill is a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. So in addition to his crippling insecurity, pension for keeping a revolver under his pillow, he's also a drunk. Yeah, and he's also completely undermined by his only sibling as well. And his hot, hunky best friend. Ugh. It's it's a recipe for disaster. I said this was simple. It's actually not, is it? It's <laughs> deeply complicated. Well, spiraling forward in the story, this kind of situation boils and simmers, just like the oil that's roiling under the surface of the Texas dirt, right? And it's sort of ready to be bursting out in a geyser. What kind of kicks off the sort of precipitation of the disasters in the plot? So what I think kicks it off is sublimation, Kyle's sublimation. He marries Lauren McCall, he brings him to meet his father, who he seems to also have a massive crisis with. Well, the father clearly likes Mitch more than he likes him. Yeah, he seems to be happy with his son's choice. Kyle says, you know, I've not been drunk once this time. Yeah. He throws the pistol into the sea. He says, I am a fully formed adult man. Here's my beautiful wife. We will soon be followed by a beautiful family. And the whole thing is that because Kyle has not dealt with any of these issues, he still resents his sister and idolizes slash feels inferior to his best friend. And as a crisis of father-son relations, he pushes everything down and eventually it explodes. Well, but particularly around this idea of paternity and fertility. Yeah, he wants to have a family and they're not conceiving kids. And he, at one party, he takes the doctor aside and says, you know, Lucy, is she paying visits to you? And the doctor says, yes, you know, she's been several times. And he's like, tell me what's wrong with Lucy. And the doctor goes, there's nothing wrong with Lucy. Yeah, so implying that the, the situation is his own potency. Of course, it's all the coded language of the 50s, but it's very clear what they're talking about. But he describes Kyle's sexual problems as weakness. Yeah, weaknesses. And there's that amazing scene where Kyle leaves the doctor's, you know, office and there's a boy on a little, you know, oh. rocking horse. But first of all, you see this bobbing head of this boy and he's on this horse, like, bobbing up and down. Like, it's like a dozen different signifiers in that one image with this music playing over it, you know? The symbolism in this film is heavy-handed, but it works. It's an overwrought hothouse of desire. Yeah. Meanwhile, while this is going on, poor Mary Lee is like, she's still can't get anything from Rock. And then in maybe my favorite bit where she seems the most masculine, she drives in her roadster out to a service station and just picks up the gas station attendant who she vaguely knows from high school. Well, everybody knows her. Yeah. This is the so thing. They go back to a motel and she just wants to get this roiling desire satisfied with, with any man she can find if she can't have rock. You know, and power to her. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But she is flying in the face of the standards of the time. That guy is then rounded up by the police and brought back to the Hadley residence where he's like interrogated by brother and father. And he says, look, I didn't pick up her 
She picked up me. I've never heard of her being picked up by anybody. That's the way she operates. Your your daughter is a tramp, mister. <laughs> Meanwhile, isn't this the moment where she's upstairs in a red nightie dancing to the mambo while holding Rock Hudson's picture? More or less. Yeah, yeah. it's around that time. This is the, the, the Les Bongo de la Muerte, <laughs> where she dances... Her father is devastated by this news, and all the while, we know that Kyle has fallen off the wagon and is carried, literally carried in across the shoulders of Rock Hudson. He sees how his children have become. He's resigned to this pain within him. He's walking up the stairs to his daughter's bedroom, where she is, you know, dancing out this sexual aggression that she has within her, hornily and sensually, and all the while her father on the stairs, just to make it even more dramatic, has a heart attack and tumbles to his death. And of course, a heart attack and dancing to a bongo drum have nothing to do with each other, but the way it's cut and edited has this strong implication that her unfettered sexual desire, the son's sort of drunken weakness and anxiety are all too much for the father to bear. It's great. <laughs> Notice who we haven't talked about at all through this in terms of the agency of the story is Lauren Bacall. Yeah. It feels like within the schematic of the plot, she is the one who's entered into this situation. She's the outsider who's come into the family. She's the one who's made the choice to get married to Kyle. In a sense, she's caught between Kyle and Mitch. She should be the heroine of the film in a certain way if you look at it plot point by plot point. But definitely these other characters have much more problematic and passionate dilemmas. And that's why I think calling any of them really supporting is a bit of a misnomer. Like, Do you think it's one of those things where basically everybody is a supporting character? It's an ensemble piece in some ways. It's a quartet, you know? Yeah. Basically, out of a kind of sense of revenge... Dorothy Malone, Mary Lee, implies at one point to her brother Mm. that his best friend Rock Hudson has indeed slept with his wife. I think basically they are going at each other in a kind of sibling anger type of way where he's like, look, why do you go around sleeping with everyone? And then she throws at him, well, your best friend has had your wife. Now, that was where I thought to myself, is this true? Is this real? Has Rock Hudson actually slept with Lauren Bacall in some sort of offstage scene that we haven't well, understood? I believe he hasn't. There's a moment where they have the chastest little kiss, little infidelity on the steps of the doctor's office or yeah. whatever. That, that's an example of their desire does exist. It's with none of the same intensity of the, of the Hadley kids. No, no, not at all. And I, But I guess what I'm just saying is like, There's this sort of midsection of the film, because Lauren reveals that she has become pregnant. At least for me as a viewer, there was a degree of uncertainty, which was, is this actually Robert Stack's baby? And they've tried quite a bit, and now finally they are pregnant. Well, I believe believe this. Yeah, I think the way that the plot plays out, it does seem that way. But it definitely, you're left with these questions thinking, you know, what exactly has happened between Rock and Lauren? But I was just thinking, actually, compare this as a story of kind of repressed desire to The Age of Innocence and Martin Scorsese that we that we talked about last year, which I think you were surprised at how sort of smoldering the passion was in that film between Michelle Pfeiffer and Newland Archer and set way, way, way back in the 19th century, right? It's partially through the way that Scorsese films it with all sorts of shots of them kind of stroking each other's clothes and lingering in the fireplace and all that. 
There is no smoldering passion whatsoever between Lauren Bacall and Rock Hudson in this picture. Zero. And I can't help but think that that is deliberate on the part of the way Douglas Sirk is presenting this. Do you think that he wanted to emphasize the intensity of the Hadley kids so much and focus on them that he he kind of just let the story play out with Rock and Lauren? Well, I think it's also because Rock and Lauren, in a sense, are this very safe couple. They're sort of the upstanding people who try to do everything by the rules, and ultimately they should end up being the happy couple, the, you know, the blonde, mild-mannered woman, and the square-jawed man. In any other kind of representation of this, a sort of straight-ahead representation, we'd sort of be rooting for them to get together. Mm -hmm. But they just seem more or less uninteresting to me through this. And, and when we see how it plays out, I really think there's a strong dose of, well, yeah, they are sort of the good people, quote-unquote, but they're not the most interesting people here. No, and then just to conclude the plot, so the flashback is answered later on where Kyle, believing that um, Mitch is the father of his wife's baby, gets blind drunk, comes back to the house, finds the gun his father hid once upon a time, and does his very best to try and kill Mitch. At that instance, Mary Lee confronts the two of them. She grabs the gun from Kyle, and it ends up being pointed accidentally in his own hand to his stomach. It shoots him, and he dies. Kyle. Yeah. Kyle shoots himself. Kyle shoots himself, and he dies. And this is where the plot thickens even more so, okay? An inquest follows, and Mary Lee, knowing the truth... And having all these kind of very scenes beforehand in which Mitch would conveniently yell loudly in front of, like, supporting players, <laughs> Get out before I kill you! I'm going to kill you! And, right, like, so there's yeah. plenty of evidence in terms of, like, the maid and the cook and various people to yeah. think that Mitch has been angry with Kyle and threatened yeah. to kill him. And the the deciding evidence is going to be delivered by Mary Lee. Will he be accused of Kyle's murder? I don't think we're rushing into saying anything that Mary Lee has these intense grapples with, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And she begins her testimony by saying, the person who killed my brother was Mitch Wayne. In the sense that he idolized <laughs> It's like, basically, it's like, Mitch Wayne killed my brother because, in a way, my brother hated Mitch. And as a result, he died because of Mitch, but he shot himself. <laughs> it's really dragged out. And she also has this amazing hat this on. This amazing spaceship hat on, which is, like, <laughs> incredible. Incredibly wide-brimmed, you know. Just Google, you know, the images of it. It's black as well. <laughs> I really didn't know how that aspect of the film was going to end. I thought, well, maybe Mary Lee is just going to be vindictive and this is going to turn out to be a tragedy and everyone's going to end badly. Then I thought, well, maybe by uncovering her inner sort of sympathy and telling the truth, Mitch will then see that she's a good person after all and Mitch and she will get together. But no, she has told the truth. Yeah, she's finally come to a reckoning with what really was going on between the three of them. And she ends up stroking that phallic oil rig, and the two boring people drive off happily ever after, away from all this mess. In a, quote, happy ending that does not tonally feel very happy at all. No, well, the final scene of the film is we see Mitch and Lucy drive off together, which Cirque has himself said he did not film somebody else put it in 
Cirque was a huge fan of the ambiguous ending. And, you know, I have no problem with this ending in some sense because I think it's quite nice to juxtapose these two images of the true couple being unified, even if you don't give a shit about them, okay? There's a kind of a sense of unity that these two people who are supposed to be together are finally together. And the more interesting thing is the bitter ending in which the daughter, you know, Mary Lee, is now, first of all, she's dressed differently. She's dressed in this power suit. Do you notice yeah. this? And she's without a father and without a brother. And, and she's inherited the oil company. And we know that the mother wasn't around. You know, we, The mother we, died. The mother died many yeah. years ago. So basically, she is alone in this crypt, as it were. <laughs> this gilded crypt, alone as the heiress to this fortune, sitting in her father's chair, holding on to that oil derrick, sliding it down like it's a huge cock. <laughs> her father right behind her. It's This used to be my... A uh, desktop background for many years, actually. Yes. Was Mary Lee holding that uh, oil derrick. And it's so, it's dripping with symbolism. And at the same time, if you start to put yourself in the mind of Lauren Bacall and Rock Hudson as they drive off into that car, presumably off to their life in the suburbs, at the very beginning of the movie, Lauren Bacall says, Oh, you know, I'll probably end up married in the suburbs with kids. You cannot imagine that two people who have been brought together through this trail of death, drama, and sex, could possibly have a happy Aussie and Harriet life in the suburbs. Together. I don't know. They're probably driving off thinking, thank fucking God, <laughs> we are now not part of that family anymore. Like, I actually was thinking, so the scene of them driving off in sunset, like, he puts the coat on her and she smiles. If I was doing that scene, they would be ashen-faced, <laughs> putting their bags in there, catatonically driving away, you know, thinking, let's just get out of here. If, <laughs> if only Lauren Bacall had never gone to that lunch at 21, she'd be, you know, she'd be Peggy Olsen rising the ranks and And uh, two people wouldn't be dead. <laughs> well, they probably would be dead anyway to some other, you know, yeah. Mary Lee would have been killed by some Mexican rent boy that she picked up. Uh, why Mexican? I don't know. Senor Trump? Okay, we're not keeping that in. Maybe we will. Mary Lee will have stabbed some trick to death because he only can make her come once. <laughs> Okay. No, that's horrible. This uh, series is called The Male Gaze. We have certainly talked a lot about this kind of volatile masculinity, accompanied by an equally volatile feminine sexual desire. In the canon of Douglas Sirk, do you think this is the movie that deals in the most complicated fashion with maleness? I don't think that, you know, we need to specify maleness uh, per se, I just think human drama is what Cirque was good at, and he brings that to the fore in this picture. Well, yeah, no, I know, but um, I was I was quite impressed by Robert Stack in this. I mean, yeah, actor... Robert Stack was really great. He did not win the Oscar. Um, he really should have personally. And in a way, I mean, I know that Todd Haynes' is Far From Heaven is an homage to lots of Douglas Cirque, and particularly to All That Heaven Allows. But Dennis Quaid's tortured portrayal of the husband in that film who's sort of ready to explode felt like mm. very akin to me to the way Robert Stack is dealing with mm. these roiling sexual demons mm. underneath and feelings of insecurity and, and also the alcoholism wife. yeah it, it felt like it, it was a reference to that as well. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's yeah. really good. Dennis Quaid is great oh, in Far From Heaven. He really was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God the film exists. Far from heaven. All film. <laughs>
Oh, film. Yeah. Thank God that film exists. Yeah. Hey, so listen, Brian, before we finish, did you like it? Of course I did. I can completely understand how this film and this type of film would start to be appreciated much later as people start to look at something that probably at the time felt more or less like blown up, overblown hokum and then started to see the complicated artistry underneath. I mean, all you have to do is look at some of the angles of mise-en-scene that uses mirrors and screens to show how they're all kind of trapped. I mean, it's 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 beautifully staged. Yeah, and Cirque was very keen on making everything look as artificial as possible in this film. For those who are listening, I seriously recommend a text by Rainer Werner Fassbinder called Six Films by Douglas Cirque. It was originally published in the 70s in the New Left Review, and if you just look hard enough, you can find it for free on the internet. It is brilliant. So, I guess when it comes down to it, is this film queer? I would say it's queer in the sense that there is a clear set of codes that have to do with patriarchal power, respectability, marriage, family, chastity, and yet challenging it are all these other repressed desires and ambiguities where the men seem feminized and the women seem masculinized and they're kind of crashing up against each mm. other. And yes, the plot does restore the social order seemingly in the end, mm. but in a way that makes you question whether the order is tenable at all. And you really do see Cirque's mastery because all this is happening in a very contained environment and a very contained plot with a very small group of characters. You know, mm. you can truly see his, his uh, origins in the theatre in this picture, can't you? Mm. Can I ask you a question because I just love this anecdote a bit? Yeah, sure. Like, Rock Hudson is definitely the right person to be playing this character because the way he looks and then just his general passivity are so sort of at odds with each other. Like, yeah. it's really interesting. But Rock Hudson is not good in this movie, necessarily. He's not asked to do anything no. particularly uh, challenging. But he has lovely, lovely hair. Oh, yeah, he has lovely hair. I, after seeing a few Rock Hudson films when I was in university, brought a picture to the, my barber and said, make me look like this, but my hair is just too damn thick, you know? So you, what, what were you trying to do exactly? Well, I mean, like, that was when, like, big coiffed hair was this thing. It's the late 2000s, you know? I mean, I just had a side parting and a nice kind of uh, bouffant. But, but, like, my hair is immovable. Well, it's funny because when we get to when we get to Johnny Depp and Edward later in the season, I can tell my own horror stories about wishing that I had long hair that I could part down the middle. Uh, oh god, no Brian, you and I both have hair that we just have to like, like wire. accept. Well like yours wire. is like wire and mine's like like long grass. Straw. <laughs> no, my hair's not like straw. Wheat? Feels of wheat. No, it's more like uh, moss. <laughs> straw. You don't even know what that means. Six straw. No. No. Anyway, that's the end of the podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> um, we are going to be returning next week. I think we didn't necessarily plan this, but it's another of our, our older films. It's an even older film. And another one that kind of looks at the mythos of masculinity on the American frontier. Mm. While Written on the Wind was set in 20th century Texas, this is a Western that's looking at the kind of establishment 
of the nation as white civilization battles with na the Native American population and has two really, really divergent masculine protagonists. John Wayne, the quintessential... John Wayne's in this! The quintessential Western hero and young up-and-comer bisexual heartthrob Montgomery Clift, oh. otherwise known as Brian's dead boyfriend. You know, I keep forgetting how much I love westerns, you know? This well, is the man in me speaking. Yes, well... Like, The Searchers is probably one of my favorite films. We're going to talk about all of that next week, darling. The film, for those of you who, who want to watch in advance, in two weeks' time, will be Red River, directed by Howard Hawks. And even if you don't like westerns, it's probably the Western for people who think they don't like Westerns. We will be gazing on Monty and John and a few other homosocial cowboys in two weeks' time as we continue the male gaze. Anything else we need to say? Yeah, my Aunt Mary loves John Wayne. Like she, we, we, we usually buy her a John Wayne calendar every couple did of she Christmases. Did she subscribe to the podcast? I'm, she has an iPad, you know, old people love, love technology. Well, don't be like Sean's Aunt Mary. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, leave a rating or a review. We don't get a lot of ratings and reviews. We're, we're discovering that a lot of you are not letting us know that you're, you're listening. So please... Tell us. Yeah, also, you can find us at Broad Appeal Pod on Twitter, and we both have individual Twitter handles. Brian is B.A. Mullen Speaks, and I am Sean McGovern X. We're also quite proud of www.broadappealpod.com, our beautiful website created on Squarespace. Uh, if you want to sponsor us, Squarespace, just do it. On the website, you can find... All 20 of our past episodes on women of the 1990s and some blog posts and various other writings. We'll be back with you in two weeks. See ya.